please turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 25 today. And in chapters 12 through 14, uh, if you're here for the first time today, we have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this year, uh, picked back up in verse or chapter 5, and we're working our way through. There's 16 chapters. We're in chapter 14 now, so we're nearly there. But in chapters 12 through 14, Paul teaches the church on various gifts that God gives to us to serve, for to serve one another uh, in the church. And because the church in Corinth had abandoned the whole service idea, that part of these gifts, uh, they had come to participate or to try to participate in these gifts the wrong way, with the wrong motives and the wrong goals. In chapter 13, we learned that the true gifts were not the end of themselves, but simply a means to the end. The end being love. Giving of ourselves for the benefit of others. And, and so now in chapter 14, Paul is going to address head-on the wrong use of one gift in particular, and that is the gift of tongues. We're going to see in this passage a right way and a wrong way or use of this gift. Or we could say it this way, a God-given, spirit-gifted use of tongues and a man-made, man-centered, falsified gift of tongues. And when we finish working through this passage together today, I hope to share with all of us some ways that we can apply these truths, these principles, in other areas of our lives as well. We are, by nature of this passage, we're going to talk about tongues a lot today. Hooray, right? But the application goes beyond just good tongues, bad tongues. Okay, so let's jump right in here. Chapter 14, verse 1. This first word, pursue. Which just means chase after with intensity. To hunt down. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So gifts can be desired, but they cannot be pursued. You cannot pursue a gift. You cannot hunt it down until you've captured it. If you could, it would no longer be a gift. We are all commanded, though, to pursue love and to use our gifts that we've been given freely in order to love. So pursue love. Earnestly desire the gifts, the spiritual gifts, and love other people through them. And Paul finishes this verse with a gift. Uh, in relation or in contrast to the type of tongues the Corinthian believers were trying to hunt down and pursue and capture. He writes, especially that you may prophesy, proclaim the truth of the word of God, pursue love, earnestly desire gifts, and in particular, instead of the flashy uh, personal enjoyment, the showing off type of gifts that they had made their use of tongues out to be in that church, How about proclaiming the word of God in a way that everyone around you can understand and benefit from? That's what Paul's saying in this chapter. Now, as we get into the next several verses, it is helpful to note that for the most part, whenever Paul's using the singular form of tongues, a tongue, That's a clue for us that he's talking about that wrong form, the fake form that the church at Corinth was pursuing. And then when he uses the plural word, tongues, 
He's referring to the right kind of tongues, a biblical kind of tongues, such as we saw in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to see that as we work through these verses together. So verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And by the way, it's important in here, and I don't usually ever disagree because I'm not smart enough to, right, to disagree with how a bunch of really, really, really intelligent and really godly men did a translation of the scripture. But in the Greek here, where it says God in our English translation, there is no definite article. When Paul refers to the true God, he puts a definite article like the, that's a definite article in English, the church versus a church. Or, in this context, it's not just a God. The God is what Paul would usually say. But that definite article is not in this verse. So we could read it, and we might argue we should read it. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to a God. And when we know the history of the church at Corinth, and the way that they would uh, participate in those ecstatic utterances in their pagan worship, well, now that makes sense, doesn't it? Speaking in these ecstatic utterances as if to a God. And then continue. It says in this verse, For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And again, possibly not the Spirit, but it could be in the Greek, his Spirit. Meaning in his own mind, the inner man. It could even mean with his breath. The word pneuma in Greek can mean wind, breath, or spirit, like ghost, the Holy Ghost, depending on the context. Just like we sometimes we run to the store, or we uh, make sure that our refrigerator is running, or, you know what I mean? We can use that word, and it can mean different things, but it doesn't mean all those things every time you say it. It means what it means in the context of the sentence, or the paragraph, or more. So how you decide to translate the first part of this verse... A God or the God has an impact on how you're going to translate the second part of this verse. His spirit or his breath or the spirit of God. And realize in the context of these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, Paul is saying these things to speak to the uselessness of the type of tongues the church was practicing. Where the Corinthians would have seen that kind of utterance, those indistinct utterances as positives, unique positives, Remember, the mystery of it made them feel cool and superior to other people. As if they were saying, ooh, what are they doing? That looks amazing. That looks mystical. I want that. And then Paul says, useless, unfruitful. So if I want the ecstatic utterances to be good and acceptable, if I'm looking at this verse and I want that, I'll probably see this verse and I'll want it to say that speaking in these utterances is speaking to God and and, in the Holy Spirit. But when I look at these verses in the whole of these three chapters, what it really looks like, what it looks like Paul's telling them is that when they speak in these indistinct utterances, that they're mimicking the utterances of speaking to a God which they knew before their salvation, a pagan God, and in doing so, wasting their breath. Numa. Then verse 3, let's keep seeing if this pans out. Verse 3, on the other hand, in contrast, the one who prophesies that proclaims the word of the Lord in understandable language speaks to people 
for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And now verse 4, Paul sums up verses 2 and 3, which should tell us how to rightly understand verse 2. Verse 4 says, the one who speaks in a tongue, remember that's that singular, those are those ecstatic utterances. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Realize Paul's contrasting there. Sometimes we think, boy, you gotta build yourself up. You gotta speak, speak power to yourself. And we think about those things. The world teaches that philosophy. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's something where we're gonna see later we need to be innocent of evil. Paul's contrasting these things. With these contrasts, Paul isn't commending building up yourself. He's saying one of those is self-centered motivation. The other is others-centered. And what is Paul saying in these chapters? Choose love. Choose love. Verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. And say, "Uh uh-oh. That doesn't sound like the last verse, but what did he say? Was it singular or plural there? I want you all to speak in tongues, plural, biblical way, but even more to prophesy. It'd be great if y'all did. Remember though, in verse uh, 30 of chapter 12, Paul asserted that not everyone could have the same one gift. Does everyone speak in a tongue? And the answer was no. Okay? But Paul is saying that even if you were speaking in tongues... Even if you were doing it the right way, all of you, I would still rather you prophesied. The one who prophesies, this verse says, is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that it can be understood by all. So that the church may be built up. What's the goal? Is the goal tongues or prophecy or is the goal that the church be built up? And that goal should shape the way we think about the gifts. Does that make sense? Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, in even the right way, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation? The, the apostolic gift of revelation, which Paul was exercising in the writing of this letter. We're, we're experiencing that gift right now. Or he says the spiritual gifts of knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If Paul's speaking about the right kind of tongues here, he is confirming that it is not a revelatory gift. Tongues aren't given for revelation, for teaching, for instruction, for evangelism. It's not. And if it's not that, then what is it? We're going to see later it's a sign. It's a sign. We'll see why in a little bit. But this means that tongues were never intended to be used to teach, to train, to reveal, which means it's not even an evangelism tool. I would think sometimes, just as I would read a passage like this or read in the Bible, I would think maybe sometimes that if we went to a foreign country, if I was to be in a foreign land and I didn't know the language, and maybe God would supernaturally make us able to talk to those people there and share the gospel with them. Frontline stuff. But does what Paul says here rule that out? Remember, missionaries have been learning foreign languages since the first century. Uh, Wycliffe Bible translators and others like them are still doing that work because it needs to be done, because people need the Word of God in their own language. And if that's not what the purpose of tongues was in the first place, it's not going to be what the purpose of tongues is today. Does that make sense? Verses 7 and 8, he gives these great illustrations. Verse 7. 
if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Now think about this now. If you had the finest instrument, the finest instrument, perhaps a Stradivarius violin, those are worth millions of dollars, each one worth millions of dollars, but nobody knew how to play it. Nobody knew. Nobody knew how to make it sound the way we've heard uh, other talented musicians play those instruments. So we know and appreciate their beauty because we hear the beauty of the sound, right? But what if nobody knew how to play it? Would we think that if a person grabbed it and maybe they like used the wrong side of the bow or, or even forgot that it existed and they were just cranking on that thing and putting their fingers in all the wrong places and holding it in the wrong way and, and all it would make is that like screech. If that's the sound that that made, I think back to when you were just starting, maybe some of you were in band or orchestra in, in elementary school and you first got that instrument out and you thought you were the coolest ever. And then you grabbed it out and you started playing maybe a trumpet and just was all that's coming out of that thing or a clarinet. Oh, and that screech. Our poor parents, right? As all those things occurred. If that's all that's happening, are we going to know the value of that instrument? Are we going to view that instrument as valuable? We might say, well, no, no. But even more important than that, what about that bugle player? What if that bugle player can't properly play that instrument on the battlefield? If he plays something wrong, is that without consequence? The answer is no. No, not at all. If that bugle is misused, people will get hurt. People may die if that thing is not used rightly. And even if the bugle player loves that bugle... He loves it. He he polishes it every night. He cleans it out. He named it George. All that. He loves that bugle. And he loves playing it. He, he feels so very special about himself when he tries to play that thing. Even if all that's true, if he's doing it the wrong way, he's hurting other people. And that bugle isn't made for his personal pleasure. There's, there's an aspect, right, of learning a musical instrument where as you're learning it, it's fun and it's exciting and you love learning new songs and, and getting better and better at it. But there's a point where you've got that thing mastered. And at that point, if there aren't other people there to appreciate it, it's not really all that fun. When you learn that thing, you learn it for others, to play for others. If we don't have an audience at the orchestra, it's going to be a terrible night. It's for others. That bugle wasn't made for his personal pleasure. Its purpose is to bless others. And furthermore, if his misuse of the bugle is hurting others, no matter how much he loves to shine that thing, if his misuse of the bugle is hurting others, it should automatically no longer bring him pleasure to play it. If it's hurting other people, it should no longer bring him pleasure to play it. That's not loving. Does that make sense? We are to pursue love. Verse 9. So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, not understandable, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. That breath idea. That's not pursuing love. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. Meaning that if you're saying... What you're saying couldn't be interpreted by anybody. 
You're not actually speaking in a real tongue. But, or therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker, a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit. We want to see the Spirit move. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you want to see the Spirit working through you, strive to build up others in love. Speak to them in intelligible ways. And someone might say, Oh, we want to see the Spirit moving amongst us. We want to see the Spirit working here. I ask, well, do you really? Do you really? Is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit what you truly want to see? Well, the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. When the Word of God is at work, the Spirit of God is at work. And in the power of the Spirit, Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 22-24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Desires that we have that are not based on truth. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Change your thinking. Get your thinking right in accord with the truth. And then to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, true holiness. The power of the Spirit through the Word of God does this. We are prone in our sin to have all kinds of wrong thinking. The world pumps all kinds of wrong thinking. And as that becomes our thinking, it generates wrong desires, deceitful desires. And then we do what we do because we want what we want. Our wrong thinking generates wrong desires, which generates wrong actions, disobedience. So Paul says, this is the power of the Spirit, renew your minds, change your thinking. And when our thinking is in accord with the truth, true right knowledge results in right desires, which will result in right righteous actions. Does that make sense? So the Apostle Peter, also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said it this way. 2 Peter 1, 3-8, His divine power, there's that word, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, so that means like signs, miracles, and wonders? Well, no, it says this. This divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That sounds like what Paul just wrote. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with signs, miracles, and wonders? No. Virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Those are the qualities, the virtues that Christ works in our hearts and lives that make us fruitful. 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So please see and realize, becoming a partaker in divine nature, living in the power of God, the Spirit, results in repentance. It results in self-control. It results in brotherly affection. It results in love. And we could say this, what it does not result in, what Paul is fighting against here in the church at Corinth, it does not result in a self-centered, self-motivated, self-interested, self-amused, self-esteeming, unrepentant, unbiblical, mystical-looking spirituality. A mystical-looking spirituality. With that in mind, know this. You can be spiritual without being godly. That's possible. You can look spiritual without being godly. There's all kinds of false spiritualities in this world. Many of them call themselves Christian. But the word of God says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy or clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, look at my faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, a tongue, should pray that he may interpret. I think we see in this verse, and we're going to see it a little bit next week too, Paul's starting to put a grid through which to work, where if you're doing it the wrong way, you can't pass the grid. You won't pass the test. So if you speak in a tongue, then pray that you can interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit, or remember my breath, that prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? Uh, because this is true, what am I to do? Should, should we all then start praying for tongues and interpretation? No. Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So what's the clear instruction from these verses? Paul's saying, don't bother praying in a tongue. Don't. Pray in your known language. Praying in tongues is unfruitful. And I do want to be absolutely clear here. I want to be kind, also realizing the need to be blunt, speaking the truth in love. Someone might say, but pastor, I, when I've prayed in tongues, I, I always feel wonderful when I'm done. I feel so spiritual when I'm done. I, I, I feel so close to God. But according to the truth in these chapters from 1 Corinthians... That thinking is actually selfish. It's selfish. And second, please know this. Our feelings can lie to us. Our feelings can lie to us. Think about it this way. We must have a wrong view of God. A wrong view of God. If we can feel close to him while doing something he's said not to do. If I feel really close to God when I'm doing something he said not to do, my thinking is wrong. My motives are are messed up. Because, remember, if I think right, I will want right, I will do right. So we shouldn't feel close to God when we're consumed with thinking about our own feelings. We should feel close to God when, when we're submitted to his will as revealed through his word. When our thinking is changing, our desires changing, our actions changing, growing in godliness, that's when we should feel closer to God. We should feel close to God when we're sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of others. Being like Christ. 
Remember, we were were the ones who lost in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins. And God loves us. He loved us in sending Christ. In Christ, in his perfect righteousness, humbled himself and took on flesh, lived a perfect life, didn't deserve to die, but gave himself sacrificially for us at the cross, bearing our sin on himself so that we could be saved. When we act like that, that's when we ought to feel close to God. Sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of others. Praying silently in a tongue to myself, for myself, is not doing that. And Paul explains why in verse 16. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, breathing out those ecstatic utterances, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? To your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. When we pray together, we are to pray together. Together. I didn't say this earlier, so this doesn't count as sermon time. This is announcement time. When we get together and pray on Sunday night, the second Sunday of September, uh, we're going to pray together. And even in an application from this message, we're not going to just pray to ourselves and by ourselves that Sunday night. We're going to pray so we can pray together. And we can't do small groups because that will you know, be breaking all the distance laws and all that, but we're just going to pray. We're going to be one small but not so small group that night, and we'll get some microphones, and we'll ask some people to pray, and we're going to pray as a group. That seems to be what this passage would tell us to do. Okay? Now the word amen, back to the sermon. The word amen means, yes, so be it. It's from the Hebrew language, and and it was brought into the church, the early church, understandably, and it's been used ever since all over the world by the church in every language, just transliterated into those languages, and it's used to affirm what is being said by another. So when we pray together, and when we speak to one another, with one another, we say things like, yes, right, or Lord, do this, Lord, grant this, amen, and through it, We agree together as a body and we build one another up. This is how we are to pray in the church. Verse 18. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. What? Remember, this is plural. He's talking about the biblical tongues. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. Five words. Jesus died to save sinners. How's that? Five words. I'd rather do that with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Those five words are far more impressive than me uttering indistinct sounds that you can't understand. Notice, tongues plural, verse 18, a tongue singular in verse 19. So what tongues did Paul speak in? Think about this. If they had not heard him speak in tongues, or even if they had heard him speak in biblical tongues once or twice, if they're speaking in their version of tongues often, but Paul said he's done it more than all of them, when he hasn't been doing it that much, then what is he saying? And the big, the big picture here is this. Even if he only did it once in Acts 19, which we'll see in a little bit, Even if you only did it once, what Paul's saying is, I've done it more than all of you. What you're doing 
isn't tongues. And even if I've done it once, I've done it more than all of you. That's what he's saying to them. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children. Don't be childish. Don't be immature in your thinking. Be infants. Be as innocent as infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Uh, Do you know or do you remember from previous Sundays how these false tongues got into the church? Uh, These early Christians in Corinth were experienced in the evil of pagan practices. This is the first church at Corinth. These people were not the children of Christians or the grandchildren of Christians. This is the first batch. They were all involved in the other things before. Uh, The way they were trying to speak in tongues was a copy of what they had seen or done when they were worshiping those pagan gods. So had they been ignorant, had they been innocent of those pagan practices, would it have ever crossed their mind to speak in those indistinct utterances in their church gatherings? I think the answer to that would be, well, probably not. If they had never seen such a thing, why would they start doing that? Knowledge of evil takes up real estate in our mind, creeps into our way of thinking, shades and affects how we think about things. And if the evil of this world is in our minds, the way the world views mankind, when the world calls good evil and evil good, that can take root in our hearts. And when it does, it also creeps into the church. And when we look through church history, why would there need to be instructions like this for the first century church? Why would there have ever needed to be a reformation? Why would we have needed the great awakening? Why would there ever need to be revival? If the church did not continually allow the mentality of the world to hold sway over the authority and infallibility of the word of God. Praise God, Christ says he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You know why there was a reformation? Because the church is never going to die. That's why. Jesus has promised it. But we say this, when religion becomes about selfish emotional feelings, when we love church because of our feelings, and the world is informing our thinking, and by the way, if the world's informing our thinking, how's that going to affect our feelings? When those things are going at the same time the church dies. But when we surrender our will to our sovereign king and mature in our thinking, grow in our thinking through the truth of God's word, the church lives. Souls are saved. Disciples are made to the glory of God. Now, verses 21 and 22, Paul teaches us exactly what the purposes of tongues were. I remember earlier we said that tongues were never meant to be a form of revelation from God, but instead they were used as a sign The question is, what's the sign? A sign for what? And Paul shows us from Isaiah 28. So verse 21, in the law, and that's just, that word can mean all the Old Testament. So in specifically Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, that's what he's quoting. It is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This people from this verse in Isaiah 28 is the unbelieving Jews. Tongues were a sign to unbelieving Jews. 
Isaiah was prophesying to Israel their coming judgment. Even when the Assyrians came, when the Assyrians were on the scene and they were speaking in Assyrian, the Jews knew this is because of our unbelief. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's bringing to their mind here. The Jewish people did not believe in God. They had been redeemed out of Egypt. God revealed himself to them as their God. He'd given them his word and these foreign tongues, these foreign languages served as a sign. A reminder of their unbelief. Now verse 22. Thus tongues, different languages, tongues are a sign not for believers. That eliminates a lot of use of tongues today. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and this is plural, the outsiders or unbelievers, when they enter, they'll not, will they not say that you're out of your minds? And these aren't unbelieving Jews. He's writing to the church at Corinth. These are people who've never heard the gospel before. Gentiles from the city of Corinth coming into the church building or the church, the home where they're meeting together, wherever they are, and hearing them all speak in tongues. They're going to go, what are you doing? They're all believers. What is this? Paul uses the plural of tongues here. So even if the whole church were speaking in tongues in the right way, with distinct, discernible languages that were simply not their own, it wouldn't make sense. It would be lunacy. You all believe. Why the rebuke for unbelief? But, verse 24, if all prophesy, we know this for us today, if you proclaim the word of God in a language that everyone understands, and one of those unbelievers comes, visits, outsider enters into the church, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Genuine conversion of a soul when the church is gathered together to study the word of God does not happen from indistinct utterances. Now, people might start coming because they like the mystery of it and they think it's amazing, but those aren't real conversions. That's not true growth. True growth comes from the truth of God's word. The unbeliever sees the church gathered together, building each other up under the authority of God through his word, praying together, speaking the truth of the gospel. And through our testimony of repentance and through our testimony of submission to God, through those things, that person hears us, their eyes are opened, their ears are opened, and they believe. They're saved. They become worshipers of God. So we say this, do you want to see the powerful moving of God, the Spirit of God moving amongst us? Then Paul says this, be mature in your thinking. Know this book. Follow hard after our Lord. Not passive, certainly not passive-aggressive. Follow hard after Jesus Christ, all of us. Faithfully share the truth of the gospel with others. And as we change and grow, as we see other new believers coming, as we see them being baptized, joining together with us, growing with us, we will know that the Spirit of God is moving and moving powerfully. Now, that idea of signs. Signs. What can we understand or learn knowing that tongues were given as a sign of unbelief. We know this. This is not a case of 
If they see these signs, then they will believe. We know that's not true. And Paul just said, if people see tongues, they won't want to get involved, not in the right way, not in genuine faith, not in repentance. What the sign of tongues does mean is this. When the unbelievers, those Jewish unbelievers, heard those tongues and remained in their unbelief, they received confirmation of their unbelief. And when people hear prophecy, when they hear God's word in their language and they believe, they receive confirmation of their belief, of their place as a believer. So Paul's not teaching methodology of effective ministry here. He's not saying do more of this to get more people. He's saying tongues were given as a sign of unbelief to the unbeliever and believing in the truth of what is proclaimed as a sign of belief in the believer. So do you know why you heard those tongues, Paul might say? Because you didn't believe. Well, that's a different way to think about tongues, isn't it? Do you know why you heard that truth from God's word and then you believed? Do you know why? Because God has given you the gracious gift of faith. You believe. God has gifted you with this, and this is the sign. Welcome to the family of God. And now contrast all that. Contrast all that with the idea of needing to have enough faith or waiting on God for the gift of tongues. You need to believe harder. You need to try harder. Let me coach you and practice you into this thing. You need to wait. You're not being patient enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough faith. You've got to push harder. And with that, even worse, not thinking a person's truly saved until they do speak in tongues. Please realize there are people who do this, who teach this today. Today. That if you haven't spoken in tongues yet, that you don't have the Spirit. You're not a spiritual person. You might not even be saved. And they tell young people to pray hard, wait longer, don't give up until they experience. If you're a kid under that, what are you might going to do after a while? What might you do after a while? And in an ironic twist, perhaps not so ironic, uh, what their adamant demanding of tongues should be a sign of, which is the purpose of tongues, is their unbelief in the truth of God's word, in the sufficiency of God's word. Because if they read what we have been reading this morning and believed in what this book says, they wouldn't be able to do that kind of stuff. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't make sense. And now just to confirm what Paul has said here about, about tongues being a sign of unbelief, hopefully to help us uh, to run these other passages of Scripture through the grid of Scripture, which is how we want to study the Bible, let's turn to these instances in the book of Acts. Let's, let's put this to the test. So we're going to look at Acts 2 first. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. This is the first instance of, of tongues. Okay? Uh, so we're going to start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and by the way, the day of Pentecost was already being celebrated before the church came, and it was a celebration of harvest. God's pretty good at that stuff, huh? So, at the celebration of harvest, they were all together in one place, and, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, 
Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were speaking real languages. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then he gives this long list of all the different places that they were from. I'm just going to pass that up, okay? Read that for fun if you want to later. But they heard them telling in their own tongue the mighty works of God. Verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, probably because they were in unbelief, they were mocking, said, They're just filled with new wine. They're drunk. Now look down to verse 22. 22 through 24, where Peter, no longer speaking in tongues, now that it's time to speak to these people and tell them the gospel, says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. They hadn't believed They hadn't believed. They had their promised Messiah, and then they had him crucified. And they received the sign of foreign tongues in their unbelief. Now turn to Acts 10. Acts 10. This is the moment when the apostle Peter had just preached to the Gentiles in the household of the Roman Cornelius. People, the Jews, hadn't seemed to realize were a part of God's plan for salvation. And realize... In God's grace, these use of tongues and the unbelief they pointed out, by God's grace, that unbelief turned to belief for some of these people. Acts ten forty four to 48 While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed. They shouldn't have been amazed, but they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on those Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Maybe we should think that Peter should have been ready with some water, right? He's like, oh wait, we've got to do something more here. Who received the Holy Spirit just as we have. 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for some days. So what happened? Why were those Jews so amazed? Well, they were amazed because they had not believed that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation people who hadn't even previously converted to Judaism, that they could be saved. They were in unbelief, and they received this sign. And for many of them, it changed their mind. Even when they went back into Judea, in Acts 11, 2, the following, and following those verses, it says that Peter and the others were criticized for going to these Gentile people. And part of Peter's argument to those Jews in their unbelief was that the Gentiles spoke in tongues and languages just as they had. They were wrong to have been in unbelief about God's will for their salvation. And it says in verse 18 that when they, the dissenters, heard these things, they were silent until they believed. And then they rejoiced that God had granted salvation to the Gentiles also. And then third, the third time we see tongues in Scripture, Acts 19. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul met with former disciples of John the Baptist all the way up in modern-day Turkey, in the city of Ephesus. 
And they, those disciples of John the Baptist, had not believed that the one, the Messiah that John had promised, had prepared the way for. They didn't believe it actually come yet. So Acts 19, 1 through 7. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, uh, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, no, we don't even know, haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And then Paul goes, oh, okay. These guys are followers of John the Baptist and they don't know yet. So verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, Israel preparing to receive her Messiah, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Paul just told them who it was. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those then believed. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So these, again, Jewish men. These were Jewish men, perhaps amongst other Jewish men. And when they believed in the Messiah that John had promised, when they received the Spirit as the apostles had at Pentecost, and as the Gentiles had in Acts 10 for the first time, tongues were given as a sign. And if Paul was included in this instance of speaking in tongues, then that may have been the one time that he referred to earlier where he'd spoken in tongues more than the whole church at Corinth. This might have been that time. Okay? But this was given as a sign because of their unbelief. So this was the purpose of tongues. And and when the Jews in Judea were questioning what Peter had just done, uh, did they have to see and hear tongues for themselves in order to receive that sign? When Peter came back and said, the Gentiles spoke in tongues just like we did, they didn't go, okay, well, when we see them do it in continuous fashion, then we'll know you're right. It happened the one time the sign had been placed and their unbelief was proven to be wrong. Okay? They didn't need further continuous personal confirmation. And of course, as we know, we just read it. It's recorded in God's word. So those three instances of that sign of tongues still serve the same purpose they served when they initially happened. And we can still see those signs in scripture. We don't need it more. We already have it here. Okay? Tongues were used when Jews were not believing something that they should have believed. And especially about Jesus, about the gospel, and about the who the recipients would be of the gospel. And they happened, we've got record of them, and they still serve that same purpose, and our belief can be confirmed in them just the same. Now, I hope that this has been helpful. Uh, some of us may have more exposure, more experience to uh, the misuse of tongues, even in our day. Some of us are more familiar to the idea of tongues, where this might have been uh, more interesting to you if you had that previous knowledge. Now, the reality is, though, some of us might think about what we just talked about for the last half hour plus and be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? That may have happened with some of you today. But I want all of us to hear this. There's more to learn from this passage than don't try to speak in tongues. Or the tongues that we see people trying to do today is not really biblical. Uh, those things are important. And for some who have been caught up in it, it's super important, very important. Uh, but there are more things that we can all take away from this passage and from this message that are important for 
all of us. Okay, so I'm going to share these four things. Number one, using your mind is good. (laughs) Using your mind is good. Train your mind in the word of God. Think truth. The word of God is truth. Sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. We don't have to be scared of thinkers here, do we? We don't have to be scared of thinking. Thinking hard things about God is good. It's good for us. Ask questions. Dig into the scriptures. Uh, Let's work hard at this. And love the Lord our God with all our mind. It's worth it. Let me say it this way. True biblical spirituality never bypasses the mind. True biblical spirituality never bypasses the mind. Number two. Preaching and teaching the word of God is good. Preaching and teaching the word of God is good. I I hope that even if you've never heard of tongues before, even if you were already convinced maybe before you came here today that that Pentecostal stuff that you see in charismatic stuff just doesn't look right or seem right or feel right, I hope that what you saw today is that we take the word of God seriously. Not that others don't, but certainly we do. We don't want to miss a thing of what God has given to us. This book is full of treasure. It is better than gold. And we want to dig up and find every single bit of it that we can. And if this is God's word, then who are we to say, I I care about this part. I don't really care about that part. This interests me. That doesn't interest me. Well, now we're just going by our feelings again. The word of God is, is where it's at. That is the authority here because Jesus is our authority. Jesus is the head of this church. He is our Lord. And if his word takes three chapters to teach us to put away childish preferences and feelings and worldly practices in favor of sacrificially loving each other and building each other up in truth, then we're going to take time and go through it and see what everything God has to say. And maybe, just maybe, one of these times the Spirit's going to prick our hearts and we'll realize, well, I don't speak in tongues, but I've viewed this gift that way. I've viewed that talent that way. I've viewed going to church like that. And I need to repent. May God be gracious to help us to see those things. And and God is gracious and helps us, praise God, to keep changing and growing. God is good to us in that way. Where we would want to not see people impressed by me. But to give ourselves for their good and to build one another up. To sacrifice and to serve. Realize we could insert any other gift in the place of tongues here and the application would be very similar. And God promises us too. His word will always accomplish everything he sent it to accomplish. Always. Every time. And so, for me as your pastor, I want to set before you his word. The spirit will empower the spirit-inspired word of God. Not mine. Not my thoughts, not my feelings, not my opinions. Number three. And I have to say this twice. Alienating unbelievers through unbiblical conduct is not good. We've had two, this is good, this is good. Here's one that's not good. Alienating unbelievers 
through unbiblical conduct. It's not good. Now, whether it's an unbiblical view of tongues or an unbiblical view of anything else, we know this, when we get selfish or if we get cocky or prideful, people will know and they won't feel welcomed. They might even say, those people are crazy. They might feel that way. Now, people, people may not like what we believe in the gospel, but they shouldn't have any other reason to not like us. We, we should be loving our neighbors, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially us in here together. We should be loving one another. And, and that love should cause our presence as a church in the community to be a presence that is inviting. That is inviting. Um, think about this. Do you know what kind of people we want to see come around here? People like us. Sinners who need saving. Uh, disciples who need discipling. And discipling right up until the day we see Jesus face to face. That's who we are. And that's who we want to see here. And then number four. Remembering that church is for everyone is good. Remembering that church is for everyone is good. Remember the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth that speaking to each other, even praying, was only beneficial when it could result in an amen. If there can't be an amen, it's not fruitful in the church. The church is a body. We are uh, not a group of individuals who come to get what we want. We are a family who comes to give what we have. And of course, as God changes our thinking and as we grow and as we mature, right, in our knowledge, we want the word of God and we want to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ and we want things that are good for us to want. But even then, it's not just first about me. We need to come here, all of us, to give what we have for each other. The more any church remembers that, the healthier, more fruitful it will become. Let's love one another in these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. And God, first I pray that if there would be um, anyone here today who perhaps has thought that being in church or knowing people in the church or reading their Bible, or even things like um, exercising gifts, that those are the things that make us become Christians, that those would be the things that save us. God, I pray that you would open their hearts and eyes to the truth of the gospel, that Christ, Christ and Christ alone, his death on the cross for us is everything for our salvation, that truly all we have is Christ and that all we need is Christ. Lord, if there would be someone here today who does not know Christ as Savior, who has not been regenerated, that you would give them life today. And Lord, where we need repentance, continue to work in our hearts, that we would be mature, that we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus and, and take on the divine nature of godliness and righteousness being changed and conformed into the image of your Son. God, please continue to work in us in that way, uh, that we would be willing and happy to give of ourselves for the benefit of each other. 
Uh, Help us to love one another and to love you uh, with our whole heart, soul, our mind, and our strength. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.